0: Thanks for listening to The Derivative. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world.
1: It took me a while to actually take his advice and learn how to program. But once I learned how to program, it changed my life. I was able to backtest every concept that I had learned in all the books on technical analysis and all the classes I took and all the actual work I did. And I was able to determine what worked and what didn't. And, you know, technical analysis is a difficult Um, difficult process because many times everyone applies it differently and beauty is in the eye of the beholder so I back tested the way I personally view charts someone else may back test differently than I did but when I did it my way I found that anywhere from 95 to 98 percent of technical analysis did not work did not make money, was not tradable.
0: All right. Hi, everyone. We're here with a guy who's been around the trend following, technical analysis, fund management business so long, he's sort of gone full circle back to the beginning. Now, putting his quiver of systematic models onto the emerging derivatives markets, which are Chinese futures. He's our friend Fred Schutzman of Abington Global back on the pod. Welcome, Fred.
1: Thanks for having me, Jeff.
0: Good to see you. Where you at home there?
1: Yeah, I'm at home, uh, Forest Hills, Queens.
0: Forest Hills, Queens. It it has a little Queens vibe. And then we'll (laughs) get your uh, New York accent. I I love when you say chart. Can give us a chart. Chart. (laughs) Chart. We'll spell that out. Um, (laughs) so what's it been like you guys go you said you just got home so are you going into the office are many people going into the office um
1: you know most people are not uh if you don't have to there's really no reason to
0: yeah um and where would you go to the office if you were going downtown manhattan
1: uh downtown the world financial center
0: yeah so we we covered your background a little bit on the pod last april and we'll put uh, links to that part in the show notes so people can go back and get the uh, extended version. But for now, if you just give us kind of the uh, the big highlights of your career as a futures market trader and investor. Sure. Um, I
1: started out in 1986 as a technical market analyst, a chartist, basically, uh, 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 to be correct, you know, more specifically, I worked in at the Commodity Research Bureau in the chart room. I'm the guy who held the paper to make sure that the lines were printed uh, properly. So I, I started off uh, producing the chart, helping to produce the chart book back then. Uh, you know, in the old days, they produced manual chart books once a week. That was nineteen eighty six. I uh, went on, I graduated, went on to become a technical, a full-fledged technical market analyst. Uh, I really enjoyed what I was doing, but uh, I didn't know if it worked or not. You yeah, know, real quick, it, real quick
0: almost... C- Commodity Research Bureau, that's like CRB and those books that used to come out. That's, that's yep. not a government agency. That was a uh, a private company or whatnot.
1: Private company owned by the Gila Brothers. Yeah. Oh,
0: are they still around? Like I used, I think we used to get CRB data. I was was the CRB index was a futures market, futures contract for a while,
1: right? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, and it might still be. I believe it still is actually.
0: Well, if neither of us really
1: know that, that's probably not very liquid. But uh, uh, back back then, it, there were twenty seven markets in the CRB, and Bill Gila was still there, but he had just retired. He he wrote a famous book, I think, in like nineteen sixty two. I forget the exact name of it. How to read charts or something. But when I worked there, John Murphy was basically taking over uh, for Bill Gila. He was writing the front page. Commentary, and uh, I had the privilege of working with John Murphy. Nice. And
0: so you're like literally hand drawing the charts, or they're printed.
1: Uh, uh, Not hand drawing. The machine was drawing them. I was just making sure that they plotted properly on the paper. uh, And if if the chart wasn't proper, I'd pull the paper out and put another piece of graph paper in. Right.
0: Start over. Uh, we'll we'll okay. have to look that up where those guys are now. So sorry, then you you question yourself of whether that this charting stuff works.
1: Uh, I I became a full fledged technical analyst, joined the Market Technicians Association, passed the CMT exams, uh, and I really believed it worked. But I wasn't getting any feedback. It's as if someone went to medical school to become a brain surgeon but never did any operations. How do you know uh, the theory that you're learning in school could actually save someone's life? How do you know it works unless you perform an operation? Yeah. So, so you, I wanted to perform an operation.
0: You wanted to I start wanted, cutting.
1: I wanted to trade. And I figured the only way to determine if my knowledge, you know, if what I knew actually worked and actually made money in the markets was to buy and sell commodities.
0: Yeah, for your own account.
1: Uh, For my own account initially, and then uh, for client accounts. Uh, You know, I was always skeptical of the industry because every technical analyst I spoke to called every bottom and every top in the market. Everyone, selectively remembered their successes and forgot their failures. Um, You know, I wanted a report card. You know, I I remembered my school days and I I appreciated school. I like going to school and getting a report card. I knew how I stood. I knew how well I was doing and trading, I felt, would to some extent give me a report card.
0: Yeah, you um, would say that the ultimate report card, right?
1: Yes, yes. I mean, obviously, the, there are traders who are more skilled than others. But I felt that even if I was a mediocre trader, uh, uh, having these tools at my disposal, I should certainly be able to generate a profit.
0: Uh, and so that led into Briarwood?
1: That led into uh, Briarwood, uh, and it was uh, probably a five or 10-year process. I didn't realize how difficult trading actually is. Uh, knowing how to read um doesn't... Uh, you, you can't monetize that skill immediately.
0: Well, thank uh, God you weren't doing the brain surgery you mentioned. You might have lost a few of those early patients.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so uh, first step was trying to understand how to actually apply this theoretical knowledge in the markets and how to get out if I was wrong. You know, in the beginning, I figured it, I'm, I'm always going to be right. What do I need to stop for? Right. So first thing I had to learn was how to place a, a stop loss order. And then after a few years of doing it, I realized that, you know, I need to backtest these concepts. And the only way to backtest test these concepts is to learn how to trade. Yeah. And, and, uh, a famous, you know, I was very fortunate, uh, early on a famous commodity trader, Robert Rutella was, you know, uh, I, I knew him from, uh, the coffee floor. And also uh, we were both teaching at the New York Institute of finance. Yeah. Robert was very generous with his time and advice. And basically told me, if you want to get anywhere, you have to learn how to program.
0: Yeah, he's yeah. been on the pod. We'll put a, we'll put a link to his, his notes in there, or a, a link to his pod as well. Um, yeah. I've, I'd forgotten about that connection. That's cool.
1: And it took me a while to actually take his advice and learn how to program. But once I learned how to program, it changed my life. I was able to backtest every concept that I had learned in all the books on technical analysis, and all the classes I took, and all the actual work I did. And I was able to determine what worked and what didn't. And, you know, technical analysis is a difficult, um, difficult process because many times, everyone applies it differently. And beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So I backtested the way I personally view charts. Someone else may backtest differently than I did. But when I did it my way, I found that anywhere from 95 to 98% of technical analysis did not work, did not make money, was not tradable. And I'm... I'm Give not, us an
0: example of like a simple like selling at a 90 stochastic or something like that.
1: Like, oh, yeah, um, sell, selling when a market's overbought. Um, I'm sorry, selling when a yeah, selling when a market's overbought yeah. or buying when it's oversold did not work. Actually, the the opposite worked a little bit better, probably better off buying when the stochastics is 90%, right?
0: And some would say, me, right? Like, to say 95% of technical analysis doesn't work, like you still have to create a strategy on the analysis. So it's not that the analysis doesn't work. It's just the strategies exactly. built purely off of that might not work.
1: Exactly. And 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 I was going to clarify that myself.
0: Not yeah, that so. it doesn't
1: work, but for me, uh, a concept that works is something I could, number one, objectively define, and number two, Generate enough of a profit to to um, give me a net positive return after overhead, and o- overhead is basically slippage and commissions. You know, and how do you for a, for a concept? You know, it doesn't pay to trade a concept where I'm going to break even and then end up losing money after you know paying commissions and slippage. Uh, not only do I have to make it a, a small profit, or and then some, but I have to make enough of a profit to make it worthwhile to trade. You know, why risk a dollar to make a a dollar one if I'm taking a lot of risk?
0: For sure. And how did you tend to tilt in your modeling towards more of like a positive skew, long volatility type models, right? Like you can take the analysis and go either way of like, Nine times out of 10, this thing reverts. So I'm going to trade that. But you're saying maybe the 10th time I only have to risk a dollar and I could make $25. That seems like the better uh, opportunity to me.
1: For me, it has to suit your personality. That always fit my personality. I was always comfortable being a trend trader. I like the idea of being right maybe 38, 40% of the time. And making nice profits in the long run. Uh, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to sell, be an option seller, for example, where I could be right 99% of the time. And then if my strategy is not perfect, blow up uh, on trade number 100. I like, you know, that fit my personality. And, you know, when I, when we started, I wanted to build something that, you know, I would be comfortable trading and I would be able to stick with. Because a system is worthless if you're not going to trade it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny to say out loud, right? Like, I'm, I like being right 38% of the time, right? <laughs> like, what? Nobody, nobody, you don't actually like that, but you're comfortable being right. There. In a perfect world, you could be right 98% of the time and still have the same risk profile, but that's extremely hard to do.
1: Exactly. Um, so once I learned how to program and I saw what didn't work and what did work and, and a lot, you know, I, a lot of other technical concepts I appreciate and I think are valuable and I think they're helpful. Uh, uh, you know, just from my perspective, being able to objectively define and program and come up with tradable concepts, there, there wasn't much I could do. Uh, For example, Elliott Wave Theory, I was always a big fan of Elliott Wave Theory. To this day, I think it has a lot of value, but it's not something I could uh, make work objectively. Hmm. So
0: when you were just a chartist and looking at the charts, you're drawing the ones and twos and threes. And what is it? There's five waves, right?
1: Uh, five, Five waves in the direction of the major trend, three waves against.
0: Right, so you're putting those numbers on a chart, and you're like, "This is great." When you went to test it, uh, not so great.
1: Exactly. Uh, in gold recently, a uh, few weeks ago, uh, a friend of mine who I had a friend of mine who I had worked with for many years, I had helped build him a divergence indicator. He's very big on divergences, and gold had a positive divergence. So uh, he goes, "Hey, should I?" By gold, it has a positive divergence. I said, it's not something I'm, you know, I'm not a divergence trader to begin with. But I, I said, one thing makes me a little uncomfortable here. And uh gold sold off in a five wave pattern. Mm. That was something yeah. I had noticed. And the divergence was perfect. Uh, it rallied for a few weeks and then came down afterwards. But that five wave down move sort of spooked me a little. So from a subjective standpoint, it was something I was uncomfortable with, you know, many times, uh, I'll look at a chart. And if I see a market rallies in five waves, and then starts correcting, I begin to get excited because that five wave advance tells me, hey, the trend is now up. Yeah. It's been you know, a little- e- even though I'm a system trader, uh, you know, Old habits are hard to break, and I still subjectively look at charts and and try to form opinions. And part of the reason I do that is, uh, and I'll go into this in more detail, but you know that is the way I started in the industry, and that's how I developed my trading my trading systems. Everything to me was looking at charts, uh, coming up with concepts first, and then building trading systems from that. I, I, you know, I always, uh, I used to teach a class in technical analysis and building trading systems. And I always spoke about throwing dots at a dartboard. Uh, What many people do is they'll throw 100 dots at a dartboard and the three dots that hit the bullseye, those are the three magic dots. Yeah. (laughs) What I like to do is, in advance, say Jeff. Look, I have a hundred dots here. These are your three magic dots. Here they are. At the advance, bullseye, before yeah. I throw them. Now let me throw them at the bullseye and see how well. See if these three magic dots outperform the other ninety-seven. And maybe these are my three magic dots because they have all their feathers. They're equally weighted. Uh, you know, I mean, there's some reason rhyme and reason behind that. Yeah. And and when I, you know, if I'm looking at a chart and I'm developing concepts, it has to make sense to me. I've seen systems where if it rains the third Thursday of the month in Paris, buy soybeans in Chicago. And <laughs> it, it Maybe it works for the last 16, 17 years, but it's not something I would trade because it doesn't make common sense to me.
0: Right, and so how do you weigh that, right? I think a lot of our listeners are gonna hear you and be like, this is so old fashioned, who looks at charts anymore, right? AI just crunches all this data, they don't care what the chart looks like. But to your point, that AI could easily shoot out like something nonsensical, like if this happens, right? If it's 2.26 PM on a Wednesday, don't take the trade because the last 62 Wednesdays that you know occurred, doesn't have any bearing on whether that's going to occur this next Wednesday, but
1: and this is what works best for me. This is what I believe in. You know, my, my thought was I was a good, I felt I was a good chart reader. And by looking at charts, I get ideas. So if I look at chart after chart after chart, and I uh, you know, I've developed certain concepts of how markets work and then i set out to build trading systems that basically emulated the way i subjectively analyzed markets and i felt if i could do that then obviously the you know the computer's doing the same thing i am but the computer is a lot more consistent and disciplined than a human and it should have better results in the long run yeah it's
0: just it's weird to me right like if you said you get some global macro grindings. Like I just take my experience of analyzing uh, sectors and this and that, and I've coded my experience into a model. I feel like people give that a, you know, if they're voting one out of 10, like, oh, that's an eight or a nine, that's exciting. And if you approach someone and be like, I look at charts and then I come up with a model, these days they're gonna be like charts, kidding me, right? Like that's, nobody does that anymore. And I feel like they'll go on the other side. Of it. But what? why do you think that is that people have kind of moved away Right. That certified market technician never really took off, um, at least to me, what I see on FinTwit, you know, on Twitter, if people put up a chart with some lines and everything, you know, 80 percent of people come back at them of like, oh, let me draw a smiley face here or, or whatnot. So wh- why do you think we've moved away from charting as a legit, legit thing?
1: Uh, a few reasons. Um, one, uh, it, it, it's a skill that you could never monetize. You know, I remember in the old days, you know, being in New York, I I was able to rub shoulders with the top technical analysts, you know, alive, Uh, uh, you know, people like John Murphy and Ralph Ancampora and Alan Shore and John Tyrone. I I mean, those were four of the classes I took at the New York Institute of Finance. I mean, big, big names. The problem is uh, technical analysts never generated income for firms. And, you know, back then you were able to get a job as a technical analyst, but year after year, companies just let their technicians go because they weren't profit centers. They, you know, they didn't consider them valuable. And now, you know, uh, I mean, I haven't looked for a while, but my understanding is now not that many technical analysts are really employed.
0: Yeah, well, they'd rather have the, the quant, right? Which is... Funny because they're so similar in nature, but
1: yeah, they, um, they're they able to
0: program it right out of right out of school.
1: Exactly, they are similar, uh, and, and I always thought technical analysis w- was valuable. And just just because I'm saying 95 to 98 percent of it didn't work for me, uh, isn't a knock on technical analysis because I I would imagine a quant would probably say the same thing that very few concepts they actually use.
0: Yeah, I think, I think you're in the majority there for sure. But I think most people have that feeling of like this technical analysis, it's all up, like you said, beauty of the beholder or in the eye of the beholder. And what you do with it matters. It doesn't just work straight out of the box.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the problem is technicians really couldn't get paid. So there's not many technical jobs out there anymore. Not only that, they had a bad reputation. This friend of mine, Dennis, who I uh, worked with with many years, he gave me a job. Uh, my first job in money management was with him, and from day one, uh, he was a big fan of technical analysis. But from day one, I'm trying to think of the exact quote. Uh, it was something to the effect that all technicians have holes in their shoes. He- <laughs> He tried to impress upon me from day one that technicians that n- never trade really, you know, th- th- you know they don't make any money. Yeah, they're analysts. They're not well paid. Uh, they they can't they can't trade to save their life because they've never done it. Not because they're applying the wrong concepts. It's just a long learning curve. It took me five or ten years. To actually uh, take my theoretical knowledge and, and, and become profitable, I think and, you
0: see the same thing in the quant space today. Like when they come straight out of school and they're they're green, they're deer in the headlights when you know presented with real money problems a lot of times. Or oh, if I'd known then what I know now, right? Of like the risk controls and all of the you know degrees of freedom that they don't think of in their first iterations of their code and whatnot.
1: Exactly. Now, uh, I always felt technical analysis uh, was very helpful because it helped me understand how markets worked, how they traded. And if I could understand how, you know, you what is a chart? It's basically a pictorial view of human behavior. So if I could understand how people uh, are buying and selling by looking at charts, I thought it would, you know it's of great value and anyone if you could understand markets and understand how markets work i think you have a big edge when you're trading trading systems whereas if you're right out of school if you're a quant if you throw 10,000 ideas at the computer and come up with two or three systems uh you know how do you know how do you know they're actually going to work going forward you know the magic darts Exactly. Obviously some dots are going to hit the bullseye, but that could be pure coincidence. So, you know, I I mean, I remember when I started out and, and, and I was so fortunate to spend time with Ralph Ancompora. and every time I spoke to Ralph, I, I was amazed at how much he knew about markets. And, and I, you know, from early on, I said, if you could take this knowledge and somehow objectify it, somehow program it, I, I strongly felt that it, it could do well in markets. And that has been an edge for me, understanding how markets work. You know, when I build a trading system, uh, I'm building a trading system that number one, is rooted in common sense. And number two, backtests well. But if it doesn't make sense, if it's not something that you would expect to continue to occur in the future, there's no sense in trading it. Just because something backtests well, just because it's the magic dot, you know, doesn't mean anything. The object of the game is to make money on the right side of the chart, not the left side of the chart. But I went the, you know, I took the scenic route. I <laughs> learned I learned how to, uh, uh, I worked various jobs. I worked, you know, plotting charts. Then I worked writing commentary that, you know, then I was a full-fledged technical analyst. Then I worked with some money managers. Then I learned how to program. Then I formed my own CTA. But if I were to learn how to program early on, the 1980s, uh, you could have been making 100% a year. If you look yeah, at- you and John uh, Henry. Richard De- or, or Richard Dennis and the Turtles. Yeah, these traders, they were making 100% a year back then.
0: Right, with with models I could write in Excel in like 30 minutes today, right?
1: Exactly, exactly. So by the time I got started, which I was late to the party, uh, by the time we were doing really well, the party pretty much ended. So I was fortunate. I was able to make some good money. Uh, You know, Briarwood had as much as, $247 $247 million under management at our peak. But if I would have started 10 years earlier, who knows? We would have yeah, had yeah. a lot more. Yeah. And if I would have started five years later, I'd probably have no money at all. <laughs> you know, I, I have friends in the industry who are smarter than I am and they really haven't been able to make money, but it's a function of markets. You know, it's difficult to make money nowadays, whereas in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, anyone could have made money. When I was teaching uh, one of my classes, I remember telling people it's easy to make money. You know, moving average system is profitable over the long run. It is not difficult. You know, back then, it wasn't difficult to build a, a mechanical trading system that would give you a decent risk reward ratio that you could trade live. Now it, it's exponentially harder. I love it. So
0: wanted to dig into that a, minute, a little bit of why, in your view, is trend, especially trend, so difficult the past 10 years um, in the US markets? What's, what's going on there?
1: uh i i guess the honest answer is uh i don't know (laughs) perfectly honest uh but i suspect it has to do with uh the economy and the fact that markets are manipulated to a certain extent uh interest rates have been held at artificially low levels for many years now uh Central banks continue to intervene in the currency markets. And historically, that's where CTAs made their money. Uh, Briarwood made most of its money in currencies and interest rates. Yeah. And if those two markets aren't moving, if, if they're not profit centers, it's a lot harder to make money. Also, um, back then, you know, I, I remember interest rates were like 5% uh, uh, in the good old days. And you could break even trading for the year and still show a 5% profit. Right,
0: but owning some
1: T-bills? You could post margin as T-bills. Yeah, you know, post the T-bills for the margin.
0: But do you think, so which came first? Like, so those simplistic models we were talking about in the 80s, just throw one of these out there. Were, are we saying those stopped working because the Fed was kind of suppressing the volatility of those markets? Or you uh-huh. think those stopped working because more machines came in? or because Um, these got too big.
1: You know, you can argue that people were taking the edge out of the market as more professionals entered the market. Uh, And that was certainly true. It was easy to make money, uh, say the 1980s, 1990s. It started getting a lot harder in the 2000s. So even even if we didn't have this type of environment, if markets were allowed to trade freely, if currencies, if interest rates just traded based on market forces, I suspect uh, CTAs will have a resurgence. They will do a lot better. But you know, the a lot of the edge may have been taken out of the market. You have more CTAs, more professionals competing. So it, it's not as easy as it used to be. And you know, th- that could be a factor as well. But you know uh, everything works in cycles, and if you remember the stock market, you know the lost decade in the stock market was the two thousands, and stocks have been roaring for the last decade, yeah, uh, over the last twelve years now. Um, maybe the true same is true in the commodity world, and I suspect it is that at, you know uh, it's been very difficult to make money. Say the last six years or so, uh, I suspect the next six years or 12 years may be a lot easier that markets will trade more freely.
0: Yeah, the uh, in my comment, I was, I was like, is it too big? I think that's been debunked a few places. Um, right, it's still a relatively small percentage of especially interest rate and stock equity markets. Uh, maybe if you're talking something like palladium or something. Um, But in terms of the main markets where they usually drive their profits, I don't think it's too big. And then it comes back to like, is it uh, AI and prop firms kind of having figured out and can easily, right. They can easily put, you know, a proxy of what all the CTAs are doing into their systems and know where the buying is going to come in, know where the selling is going to come in and get in front of that or behind it or whatnot. So I think that can kind of abbreviate some of those Simplistic signals and let people get in in and out a little better.
1: Yeah, but um, keep thinking of uh, what my partner Stephen Klein has been saying, and I and I agree with him 100. percent Stephen uh, feels that uh, a lot of a lot of people basically uh, uh, change their methodology. You know, if it's not working. If the system no longer works, they change the system. Uh, they're basically optimizing it to markets. And if you you know look at the CTA world, it was easy to make money for many years. Briarwood made money fifteen years in a row from 1996 to 2010. Uh, you know, got a lot harder. Say you know, then it got choppy, but from 2015 on, it got significantly harder.
0: Yeah, I think all our clients came in around 11. So thanks for
1: that. <laughs> uh, Stevens of the opinion that a lot of people who had profitable systems back in the day, uh, say from 1996 to 2010, when their system stopped working, instead of saying, you know, maybe it's the markets aren't trending anymore. Instead, they said, oh, now we have to modify our systems. And, uh for current market conditions. So people have modified their systems to say the last six years or so. The problem with that is uh, if markets revert back to the historical norm and they begin trending again, the systems won't work. And and this came up because we, uh, as you know, uh, uh, Abington trades China for RCM. Yeah, uh, Yeah. We're we're uh, providing RCM with signals to trade the Chinese futures markets and the signals have been very profitable. And, um, you know, it, it, it's not that we're doing anything magic. It all goes back to what John Murphy told me from day one. Uh, and that was uh, uh, the holy grail is knowing what markets are going to trend and w- what aren't. Yeah. He told me if you could develop an indicator that told you which markets were going to trend, uh, you know, that's all you need.
0: Yeah.
1: You can make right. money you don't need hand to over fist.
0: Right. The and, capturing of the trends, the easier part. Yeah. And,
1: and we'll discuss this more, but the Chinese markets are almost like going in a time machine back 15, 20 years and they're easy to trade. They trend. It's easy to make money. Uh, you know, the, you could throw many systems at them and they would all be profitable. So, you know, what happened was uh, when we went into China, our attitude was we're just going to take the same exact models that we traded in the US with the same exact parameters and trade China. And uh, it seemed like everyone else that uh, uh, created, developed new and unique models for China or changed parameters or did something different. And they all changed their models, you know. What happened was their models, quote, evolved uh, yeah. because uh, they weren't making money in the U.S. And they felt their models were broken, so they had to fix them. And these they apply, you know, and some of these people applied their new and improved models to China, and they didn't work. They didn't do well. And it seemed like Abington was doing very well in China, and a lot of these other people weren't. And, and Stephen goes to me, you know what it is? They they had these really profitable trend models, but they changed them. Yeah, What they did I don't was blame- they, they optimized them for the last two or three years instead of looking at a 20 or 30 year time horizon.
0: Right, which I, this has been a common theme on this part of, I can't blame them because it was change or go out of business, right? And if you're left with those two options, you're probably gonna change, right?
1: Like- uh, I went out of business. Yeah, so there you go. We ended up closing Briarwood. Uh I, you know, I kept, you know, I had many sleepless nights uh, uh considering this, but my attitude was the systems were built uh basically on data that went back as far as a hundred years. They worked. Uh if they worked over a hundred year period, I wasn't gonna change it because markets stopped trending for two, three, four years. Yeah. You know, my attitude was the systems weren't broken, the markets were, and maybe the best thing to do was step aside and, you know, um, it wasn't, you know, I didn't want to build counter trend models. It wasn't something I was comfortable with and it wasn't something that I felt had a good risk reward ratio. I said, maybe it's better to stand aside till markets revert back to their historical or long-term norms. And when we started trading China, again, we're trading the same exact model, same exact parameters that we had in the U.S. and China, and the models are working perfectly. They're making a lot of money. And um, yeah, you know, Which would- they, they would have done horribly in the U.S. over the last few years. So are the models broken or are the markets broken? I could argue, you know, going back to John Murphy, I could argue just if you could identify the markets that are going to trend, then we could do very well by applying our models, which are trend following in nature to these markets.
0: So we let China out of the bag there. So wanted to before we dig in there, wanted to read a following a piece from Prelude Capital and kind of set the stage. They put this out on LinkedIn. Uh, the number of Chinese hedge funds managing more than 1.5 billion in assets doubled in 2020 in China to 63. Uh, China money managers currently have 578 billion under management uh, as compared with 3.6 trillion globally. Um, Chinese hedge funds return more than 30% on average in 2020. The best performers surging tenfold, which I think tenfold means a thousand percent. That's a big number. Uh, this compares to an average 11.6 gain for hedge funds globally in 2020. Um, and then the Eureka Hedge Greater China Hedge Fund Index of 88 constituent funds, focusing on the region gained 35% in 2020. The top 10% of those posting an average turn of 80%. So with that as the backdrop, and a lot of that is not necessarily applicable. We'll dive into it, why it isn't to what you guys are doing. Um, but with that as a backdrop, is you know, tell us about, and you've already hinted on it, but tell us about what you see happening in China, why it's become such a hotbed of hedge fund activity.
1: Uh, the markets trend. It, it's yeah. easy to, you know, in the old days, I remember saying, oh, you know, easy to make money. And we made money for 15 consecutive years. And, uh, you know, every year I was amazed. I, I said, I can't believe we're just how. Simple, this is how easy it is to get a positive return every each and every year. And obviously, that party ended, but that is how China is right now. It, and we'll throw like, out
0: a quick past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results, disclaimer, but as you lived, right?
1: Yeah. You know, or or at, so far, so far, it's been that easy. Yeah. And uh, part of, you know, I believe part of the reason is. Uh, they have unique markets that are not traded anywhere else. You know, in the U.S., CTAs made their money in currencies and interest rates. And a lot of these other markets are not that liquid, to tell you the truth. You want to trade coffee, you know, or Kansas City wheat or bean oil, the, you know, uh, cotton. They're not the most liquid markets in the world outside of currencies and interest rates, it's really only a handful of really liquid markets, yeah. you know, like crude and gold and soybeans. Um, in China, they have the most liquid markets in the world. Um, I mean, I haven't looked for a while, but maybe out of the 12 markets with the highest volume, I'm, uh, out of 20 markets with the highest volume, they maybe had 12 of the 20. But they have extremely liquid markets. Uh, they have uh w- you know, they don't really have any currency markets. Uh they they do have some equity indices and, and interest rate markets, but in general, uh 95% of what we trade there is co- commodities. Yeah. So, you know and more that, so like
0: industrial type commodities, right?
1: Uh uh basically, yeah. But the, the beauty is there, you know, you can't manipulate these markets as easily, at least, you know, I mean, the currency markets, you have central bank intervention, interest rates, governments could affect, you know, int- the, you know, yields. But uh, in general, you know, what can you do about the soybean crop? What can you yeah. do, you know, about crude, you know, there's OPEC, there's other issues, but These commodities, I think, trade better on a technical basis uh, because there's fewer outside influences and the chart really uh, determines future price direction to a large extent. And they they have unique markets that are not traded anywhere.
0: Such as? What are some of those unique
1: Iron ore, metallurgical, coke. Coking coal, steel rebar, uh, um, hot roll coils, uh, but market, you know, thermal coal, market after market after market, you know, like I said, with tremendous liquidity and um, they move like markets moved in the old days. And, uh, you know, they don't have as many professionals trading there. It's probably more public participation. and uh, Despite
0: my stats I just rattled off of all those billions in hedge funds, which yeah. admittedly a lot of those are trading long only in equities, in Chinese A shares. Yeah. And I've got the winners in the Chinese stock market.
1: And I'm only talking commodities. You know, yeah. and what it, it, it's first of all, you really can't trade the commodity markets in China unless you're a Chinese national. The, you know we're not allowed to trade Chinese markets directly all we do is, is provide signals to RCM who provides the signals to the client and the client is the one who actually makes the trades yes uh, there's only you know there's maybe 40 highly liquid Chinese futures markets and only seven of those are internationalized where they allow you um, people outside yeah, yeah. of tr- China to trade them. And internationalized doesn't really include the U.S. You can't yeah, trade know. them as a U.S. Let's citizen.
0: we'll get to that in a second. Let me back up. And is is a lot of this success, like just hearing you rattle off those markets made me think, OK, but yeah, they're building, you know, the building these cities, the spending in China is well known. Right. Is it all just because they're spending so much and buying all these commodities that the prices are going up, up, up? And that's why it's such a good market to trade. Like, are you uh, seeing all they do is go up, up, up? Or you seeing major down spikes as well?
1: Um, I mean, historically, you make more money on the long side than you do the short side. Because of the nature of markets. Well, they, they can m- they, m- have
0: they can go up infinitely and they're capped on the downside
1: exactly and when they move you know they can move exponentially many times on on the upside but uh i mean we've traded both sides but in general you're right they they have been going up primarily and it you know you're asking the wrong person i'm i'm a chartist
0: I'm yeah. not,
1: you know i don't look at the fundamentals but you're right They, um, um, I believe the Chinese economy is the second largest in in the world. Yeah. Uh, Soon to be, by all
0: accounts, soon to be number one over the U.S., right?
1: Yeah. Um. And I mean, you know, I had, um, I was a a speaker with CompuTrack in 1992. We did a tour of Asia. And when I went to Beijing and Hong Kong and some of these other countries, some of these other cities in, in China, uh, people were riding bicycles. There weren't even that many cars back then. It was a different world. Yeah. China has advanced so dramatically over the last 30 years. Their economy is growing by leaps and bounds. And um, so what you're saying makes sense. Yeah, there, There's probably a lot of demand for these commodities because of their tremendous growth and, and their tremendous you know growth potential going forward,
0: right So do you view, so it it's sort of a way to play that growth potential without getting exposure to these equity markets there, right? Like we saw that um they came out, I think it was two weeks ago, and said all these companies that do like tutoring, student tutoring are going to be government owned entities or something, right? They basically shot all their stock prices down eighty percent in an hour uh, by and- saying they're right so that's the kind of stuff that scares people off of china of like oh i'd love to be exposed there but i don't want any exposure to that kind of nonsense
1: yeah i would suspect it's harder because again you know the government could enforce certain rules for companies for example how do you enforce a rule for copper you know what are you going to say no one could buy copper right Where, where where you know no one could buy copper for the next 90 days and obviously you know, that that would have a negative effect on price, but they they have less uh, uh, um, power to control the commodity markets than they do other markets. And um,
0: but part part of me thinks my pet theory is maybe they have the ultimate control and that's what keeps them kind of more smooth and trending versus, you know, in the global markets where there's no central control. Um, so they're choppier and, and less easy to trade.
1: Whatever whatever <laughs> makes the markets trend. Yeah.
0: Right. That was gonna be my next question. Like, do you do you even care? Right. If if it's if it's central committee backed uh, trends, if it's demand, you know, infrastructure spending trends, who cares, right? As, as long as it's working, you don't all, care.
1: All we care about is risk and reward. Right. Uh, obviously if the price of something could go from 50 to 100 uh, in three months and then back down to zero overnight, of, of course, that's something we can't trade because the risk would be too great. Yeah. But we don't really care why a market's going up or why it's going down as long as you know we have a good risk reward ratio.
0: Right. Or even what the market is, right? Like, you don't, you don't care if there's enough liquidity, um, let us in, let us out, let us do our thing.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and you know, we were pleasantly surprised. You know, at first we questioned the liquidity of the Chinese futures markets. You know, we saw big numbers on paper, but Stephen and I looked at each other and we said, are these legitimate or uh, yeah. Chinese government just uh, publishing them? But they're legitimate. You know, you can tell by your fills. The, the, these are thick markets and, and you know, and, and the Chinese the public seems to, um, you know, I had been told this early on, they're, they're, uh, they like to take risk, uh, you know, uh, the Chinese population in general. They're not as risk averse as they are in the U.S. And there seems to, you know, they seem to be a lot more open to trading commodities in China. I love it.
0: Um, so let's dig into the uh, the system a little bit itself there's kind of two elements, right? The automated buy and sell signals and the risk risk management overlay. So dig yes. into that a little bit if you can.
1: And just to take a step back, yeah, uh, yeah. our philosophy on markets was always that, you know, ma- uh, markets are, are different. They don't all behave the same. Uh, you know, uh, you look at a currency chart, uh, at least historically, it looked totally different than, uh, say uh, soybean chart, mm-hmm. grains trade differently than the currencies, uh, precious metals trade differently than crude oil. You know, the problem is when I started backtesting, uh, I was fortunate enough to work for a firm early on that developed a unique system for every single market. They they not only had different systems in each sector, but they had a different system for heating oil than the one they traded in crude oil. Yeah. And and I learned early on I said, "Oh, this doesn't make any sense to me." You know, they believed the sample size was 30 trades and when you know we developed systems on paper that had these great profit to risk ratios, then when you put them into play in real time, they lost money. And uh, I said from early on, I said, 30 trades is not a big enough sample size. I personally decided I wanted 2,000 or more trades. And the only way to get 2,000 or more trades is to apply the same, to apply a one size fits all approach. Same model, same parameters to many different markets across uh, a long time frame. And when I did that, you know, more and more, I realized markets change their stripes over time. Uh, for many years, gold was a dog. It yeah. did absolutely nothing. Uh, then all of a sudden, you know, I, I may have been in the business from, say, the late 1980s, and, and it took gold uh, 13 years or 15 years till it started moving nicely. All of a sudden, gold started trending. And, and gold was the hot market after, you know, after say 15 years of, of choppy action. So I learned that you never know what the next trending market's gonna be. And you never know when a market like currencies is gonna stop trending and start going sideways. Yeah. So I said, hey, I like this one size fits all approach. I like building models where I could back test and have five or 10,000 trades and since I'm applying a one-size-fits-all approach, doesn't matter if a market starts acting differently than it did in the past, begins to trend or stops trending. Uh, I, I have a cookie-cutter approach that will work no matter what markets do, as long as some of them trend.
0: Yeah. And so, but isn't that counter to your first thing you said of like that all these charts look different? You're they saying- do,
1: But there was no way to quantify it. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: There was no way to find exactly what made grains different than uh, crude oil. And even if I could, I'd be developing um, a model or a system, say, for the grain markets that uh, did not have enough trades. It was something I didn't have enough confidence in. Yeah, yeah. I even, uh, I had seen one of the most successful stock market models ever developed. Uh, I, and I, I, you know, in the beginning of my career, I was a programmer for hire and I programmed this for someone and it had over 5,000 trades over a 30 year period in the stock market trading a, a stock index. Then it stopped working. And I said, holy cow, here's something that worked for three decades yeah. and then stopped working. But if you build if you apply the same exact model, one size fits-all approach, to 30 different markets over a 20 or 30 year time frame, uh, it's a lot less likely to stop working.
0: Yeah, So that particular model probably didn't work when you put it on 20 other markets it just happened to have worked for those 30 years on that one market.
1: It was unique to the stock market. It had, you know, it looked at certain indicators like an advanced decline line, uh um, you know, certain you know certain metrics that you would not have access to normally in the commodity markets unless right. you built it yourself.
0: So you were like a kid in the candy store when you got the chinese data of like awesome here's all this out of sample data that we can see our models on and now i can get another couple thousand trades in the in the sample
1: exactly you know and at the time stephen and i said hey maybe the models have stopped working maybe trend following is dead we don't know yet but when we uh, you know we were pleasantly surprised when we applied these models to the chinese futures markets and the backtest was so profitable and yeah. the beauty of it is Uh, What you see is what you get, meaning that we we said these results are very reliable. They can be achieved going forward because there's no smack of optimization whatsoever, because, you know, these models were built before we even knew these markets existed.
0: Right. And then the flip side to that is if they stopped working in the U.S., though, they could stop working in China, right?
1: They could. They could. But uh, they, you know they stopped working in the U.S. because currencies stopped trending and interest rates uh, were no longer profitable. And and I felt that uh, you know I at least there was a reason to explain why that was so.
0: Have you dusted those off? I bet they actually did pretty well um, in the last six months.
1: Uh, I've actually in been trading to them uh, for the last two years. Yeah. I felt markets were beginning to change in night in 2019. And, you know, we were early, but they've, you know, worked well, actually, uh, for the last two years. Yeah, the
0: CTA trends had a little bit of a resurgence with um, all the reflation trade and possibly inflation.
1: Not Um, not only have they uh, worked well, but every indication is they should continue to work well for the foreseeable future in the U.S.
0: And do you have a view on that of if inflation shows up? it's for sure going to show up in those Chinese commodity prices, right? It could seem hard to have they should. U.S. inflation without it showing up over there.
1: You know, to me, uh, what I like about China is uh, we could get positive absolute returns, number one. Number two, it's not correlated to really any other asset class I've seen. It's not even that highly correlated to U.S. commodity markets. Yeah. And, you know, when I look at the two, uh, I, I mean, there is some correlation, but a lot less than you would think. Uh, so what is going to happen, in my opinion, is if China ever opens up their markets to the world, uh, every CTA is going to start trading China, if for no other reason than diversification. Yeah. Yeah adding chinese markets to your current portfolio will not only increase your absolute returns but will lower your drawdown in china uh you know i i could throw a dot at the page and, and a magic oh, dart
0: or just a normal dot
1: just a normal dot and say oh here's, an, here's another trading opportunity
0: <laughs> yeah so we touched on a little bit let's go into those so there's the 40 or so markets that you can only access in China for Chinese investors. Um, but to your point, they've started to open that up. Uh, we had Alvin Fan of OPIM on, on, a, on the pot a while back talking through this. Um, they've, they're have they trying to get internationalized their financial markets. So part of that was saying you can invest in uh, onshore hedge funds, which hasn't totally been approved yet, but they came out with that role. Part of it was you can invest in these seven, I believe it is. Uh, futures markets over there, which as you said, it hasn't totally been opened up because uh, none of the brokers over there will take. US investors. Um, you know, so international doesn't include US. maybe that's because of the trade war or who knows what what that is. Um, so but you guys have looked at those seven, you've created a model just on those seven or some subset of the seven. Um, and are creating a program to access uh, for. US investors through Cayman um, through a Cayman structure where they can get access to this. So what's exciting about those markets, which markets are those and what's it look like?
1: Sure. And what we're doing is just take the models we're trading in the. US uh, from like the late 1990s on, applying the same exact model, same exact parameters to these seven uh there's overlap of course these technically these you you could argue these seven markets are a subset of the 40 markets that's true but it's not fully true four of these seven markets are identical to the ones that chinese nationals trade Mm -hmm. three they develop just for international traders Uh, okay and uh let me just make sure i give you the right three um Fuel oil, low sulfur fuel oil. You you could trade uh, fuel oil in China, but they have a low sulfur fuel oil trader that uh, fuel oil contract that international traders could trade. Uh, Also, rubber and copper are two heavily liquid markets in China, but you can't trade those contracts directly. They created secondary contracts that... um, uh, I'm not sure exactly how they differed. They may have different grade of copper, for all I know. But yeah. they're they're internationalized um, contracts. The other four contracts, iron ore, uh, is one of the most liquid markets in the entire world. Uh, um, I it, it'll probably be everyone you know everyone's favorite market to trade or close to it going forward. It's a great market, and you get to trade the big boy contract along with everyone else. Same is true of um, palm oil, um, crude oil, and what am I missing? Um, PTA. Uh, it is. Don't ask me what this is, but it's it's an asset contract. Um, <laughs> Not
0: the Parent Teachers Association? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, it, 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 uh, iron ore uh, is a great, great contract. So is palm oil. So is crude oil. Uh, PTA has had big moves, but um, I don't, you know, in my opinion, it doesn't trend as well as the other three. Uh, um, you know, copper obviously is a, a, a great trending market.
0: And by your model, will automatically distill those lists down to the uh, tradable ones. Uh,
1: w- what it does is, you know, we I'll go through the models, but we basically built models to. In its simplest terms, basically to try to identify which markets are trending and trade them. Yeah. You know, the John Murphy, holy grail, holy grail. approach. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, easier said than done. And, uh, you know, the the trick now with these internationalized markets, like I said, there's seven of them. Four are highly liquid. The other three are becoming more liquid day by day. So, uh, you know, our hope is all seven, you know, uh, if, if you know, if you can't trade all seven today, Hopefully, you know, one month, three months, six months from now, all seven will be tradable. And as more people get into the space, they're going to be trading it. But we don't do anything different in these markets than we do elsewhere. And this is how our models basically work. Uh, our program is based on three models. We've developed many more models, but we you know, feel we get enough diversification trading three of them. Them, mm-hmm. uh, adding a fourth, fifth, sixth really didn't add a lot of value. Uh, you know, we have three that are different enough, even though all three are trend following, different enough in terms of time frame, in terms of methodology, entry, exit, uh, money management. Where they the three of them combined give us a smoother equity curve than any one in isolation, and uh, two of the three are medium term in nature one is longer term uh the basic approach is when markets go up we want to buy when markets are going down we want to sell simple trend following uh but there's a twist you know for example uh, one market's a breakout system break above resistance for example we buy another one is a pattern recognition system uh we believe that's uh somewhat unique in this industry because we've been able to take subjective price patterns, uh, put them into, uh, object, convert them to objective rules and actually program them. And, and from what I've seen, few people have been able to do that successfully. So the patterns themselves are nothing you haven't seen, Jeff, but the fact that the computer could, uh, uh, search all the commodities and identify them for us is yeah. somewhat unique and it goes back to what we said earlier "beauties in the high eye of the beholder i could show 10 technical anal- analysts a chart and and maybe five will say yeah that's a head and shoulders top four will say it's a double top and the last one will say i don't see anything
0: yeah
1: so but yeah. so yeah. It, it,
0: market more it, test right they see exactly. what they want to see
1: So it's the beauty of the chart as I see it Mm -hmm. uh, program. Uh, The systems, you know, the way they work, uh, uh, they enter the market at different stages. I was always intrigued by the concept of, of pyramiding. I always liked reading Reminiscence of a Stock Operator or or Jesse Livermore's book or or Richard Dennis and learning how these great traders would put on trades. And, you know, some of them believed in the concept of pyramiding. I could never, uh, I always liked it conceptually, but I could never take that concept and make it work objectively. Every time I tried to program, I found out that my first purchase was my best one. As I bought more and more as the market went up, uh, the risk reward would diminish yeah. uh, on each increase, you know, e- at each higher and higher level. So what we did was build three systems and entered at different times. And each of them had filters, which I'll explain in a moment as well. So We, if a market is going up or down, we may have anywhere from zero to all three systems participating. Ideally, if a market's going to have a big trend, you know we're hoping we'll get three systems, you know, getting in on the action. And if a market's choppy, we're hopeful that, you know, we don't get in or we only get in with one or two systems. Mm -hmm. But if a market, if gold is going to go to three thousand an ounce, for example, in the future. And um, you know, gold begins to go up, we may buy our first position. Goes higher. This, you know, maybe the technical system kicks in first, then the pattern recognition system, then our third system, our long-term systems, our statistical system. And that only buys not only if it's going up, but if it's going up on increasing momentum. So by the time we get the third buy, we have basically you know, done the same thing as a pyramiding scheme, but we've done it in a safe, secure fashion. We've added to markets when they moved in our favor. And uh, when they didn't move in our favor, we didn't have a full position on. We had less exposure. And if the market went higher and higher and higher, we'd be putting more and more on, but it made conceptual sense. And it, it allowed me to you know, say, okay, now I'm happy. You know, I like pyramiding because the concept was if a market moves more and more in your favor, you should increase your bet size. That, that you know, uh, that made, you know, I like that idea. I like that idea because, you know, why the, the more it moved in my favor, the more confirmation I got the better, you know, the higher the probability the trade would be. So I should somehow increase my exposure.
0: Right. And the flip side of that is it, it every day forward, maybe, you know, one day less length of the trend.
1: Exactly. But by having three unique systems with different timeframes, I basically was able to replicate that, but in a, in a nice fashion where it accomplished it gave us more exposure when markets were moving in our favor. But at the same time, uh, it allowed us to have less exposure on if, if a market failed.
0: And Did they exit on the different time frames as well?
1: Yes. Yeah. Whereas if we only traded one system, it would put on all three units right away. And then if the market went south, we'd be losing three times as much. This way, we have less exposure early on until the market proves itself, until we have confirmation. Right,
0: this way you gotta be wrong three times.
1: Exactly. It's hard to do. Um, Now, um, uh, we practice something that we like to call selective trend following. If there's a hundred generic trend following signals, we may only take 35 of them. And um, 35 we take is gonna be very much in line with what other CTAs are taking. Uh, you know, trend following is trend following, you know. Right. Uh, you know, you, you could have 10 different systems and if a market's going up, they should right. all- be- Everyone's
0: yeah. going to be in eventually.
1: Exactly. Our secret sauce, if we have any, is in the 65% of the trades that we filter out. And the filters at the system level are basically asking the question, will the trend continue? If a market is going down, is the trend, are prices likely to be lower than they are now, one month, three months, six months in the future? That's what we want to know. And just because prices are going to be lower doesn't mean we could make money if we sell short. It right. just means we're more likely to make money. You know, if you look at the uh, S&P 500, for example, it's gone up over the last 12 years, uh, you know, and. and this is a trap a lot of system developers fall into. But if you develop a system on the S&P, I think the first thing you'll notice is your trades on the long side did a lot better than your trades on the short side over the last 12-year period. And, you know, of course, the trends yeah, went up over the last up. 12 years.
0: Um, so you're saying, you know, per that concept, if you've seen this thing has mostly been going up over such and such period. You're going to be more apt to take that long signal, and vice versa. Is that yes. what, what you're saying on the filtering process? Yeah.
1: Yes. The way the filters work is uh, they, you know, that filter at the system level basically tries to determine that. You know, the stock market's been up over the last 12 years, so it's been easy to make money on the long side. A lot more difficult on the short side. So the filters at the system level say, "Okay, is the trend likely to continue?" If the answer is yes, then we're going to be in an environment where it's the trade is more likely to be successful. Over the last 12 years, uh, any trade on the long side in the S&P is, would have been more likely to be successful. So, you know, we feel that if the trend is going to continue, then, th- then this trade has an edge.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. Now, the probability, uh, the risk management overlay, which I'll go into soon, that has its own filters. And those filters ask the question is the trade likely to make money? And what we're doing at that level is more uh, assessing the risk reward potential of the trade. I don't care if the trade, if the trend's going to continue. Uh, you know, uh, the SP has been up over the last 12 years. But if you show me a trade on the short side where I have to risk a dollar to make $6, that's a great trade. I want to take that. Yeah. That's what the second set of filters is looking at. All It doesn't care which way the market's going. It just cares about the risk-reward ratio of the trade.
0: And if they're counter to one another, if filter one says yes, filter two says no, no trade.
1: Exactly. You know, what happens is uh, if we have 100 generic trend-following signals, uh, at the system level, maybe 30 out of the 100 get filtered out. The remaining 70 get fed into the probability evaluator, which we'll discuss in a moment. And about 50% of those, 35% of those get filtered out. And out of the initial 100, we're left with 35. So uh, where the 35 that, we le- that we're left with uh, are what we call higher probability trades. We're trying to find trades uh, that um, are not only where the markets not only likely to move in our favor, but where we have a good risk to reward risk to reward ratio. Yeah. And so, what's
0: that? What is is there a hard and fast rule for that ratio that you can share, or it's just you want it to be good? Uh,
1: like, we, we, I mean, we we want it to be good. It, yeah. It's based on a lot of factors, but normally. If we're risking a dollar, we want to make two to three dollars.
0: Okay, so three, three, two to three x. Um, and does it ever? Do you ever signal? Do you ever see trends where it's risk three dollars to make one?
1: Uh, yeah, but yeah. that's that's something that gets filtered out that we don't take. Yeah, exactly. uh, there's nothing wrong with it. It might be a successful trade, but all of our back testing shows if you do that trade a thousand times, you're not going to be happy with the results.
0: Right, you say, no, thanks. Um, At
1: least not the way we trade, because you know the only way to make that profitable is you have to be right 75% of the time, the risk management overlay. Okay. Uh, the, the systems are simple. What they do is they, they have a concept that we're trading. Uh, each system has an entry, two exits, money management stop and a trailing stop. And it has a filter. Uh, We didn't want to overcomplicate the system, so we put that into the risk management overlay, which has two pieces, a probability evaluator, which is concerned with entries only, and it basically tries to uh, compute a mathematical expectation of every trade, which is impossible to do, but this is, uh, uh, we feel, a proxy mathematical expectation and it has a drawdown manager which is concerned with exits the probability evaluator looks at a number of different factors that uh give us uh, a small edge or or the opposite uh tells us we have no edge in a market and the more factors that line up the better uh you know if consider them uh green yellow and red lights yeah, yeah. Uh, you know if, if uh, we have seven green lights if seven of these factors kick in we assume there's a higher mathematical expectation than if only th- we three green lights are kicking in right and you know we're we're looking at various factors not um you know uh Without giving anything away proprietary, let's say uh, trades that are giving signals in multiple timeframes, for example, are better. If you have a trade breaking out on a daily chart and a weekly chart, uh, that's a stronger signal than just the daily chart. Yeah, yeah. Um... You know, it, if a market is uh, uh, moving sideways, you know, if you have two markets that have dropped. Uh, over a six-month period. Uh, uh, one goes sideways for the next three months, then begins going up. The other one uh, is forming a V-bottom. Which one has the higher probability of success? The one that stopped sideways. going down and moved sideways for three yeah. months. Yeah. So, you know, we're tra- we tried to find certain concepts like that that we were able to program that gave us a small edge. And, and we felt that, you know, Sometimes they work, sometimes they didn't, but the weight of the evidence approach seemed to work very well. Whereas if we have eighteen of them, and uh, the more that are, are you know, more that you could check the box, the higher the probability of success. Yeah, and I was like
0: I, Like it creates a uh, don't suck mo- model, right? Like the more things you can do to not be really bad uh, outweighs like if you found the perfect filter to get the perfect trade every time.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And uh, the higher, the more of an edge we have based on the probability evaluator, the more we want to risk on the trade. The lower uh, uh, our probability of success, uh, the less we want to risk on the trade. And, and that's
0: on each of the three models.
1: Exactly. Uh, uh, typically, we'll start by risking twenty basis points in every trade uh, on each model. So. 20 base, you know, in a $10 million account, 20 basis points is $20,000, one fifth of 1%. Yeah. So if um, crude oil starts going lower and we sell, we go short crude oil on all three signals, we're risking 20, 20, and 20, 60 basis points, you know, three fifths of 1% or 60000 in a $10 million account. Yeah. Uh, this Looking to okay, make...
0: 180,000, three times
1: that. A, uh, uh, exactly. You know, anywhere from, say, 120 to 180, ideally. Yeah. Uh, we uh, can adjust, you know, the probability evaluator, uh, you know, dictates, you know, not, I shouldn't say dictates, instructs us to uh, fine tune that allocation instead of going, risking uh, 60 basis points, maybe we're risking zero or as high as 100 or 120 on rare occasion. Typically, the sailing is 100.
0: Yeah, and that's you per know, model?
1: Uh, that's all three models. Yeah, yeah, so this it'll re- go up
0: to 33 per model or
1: whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, typically we could go up to 40 in each model, uh, but, you know, think about it. We're training three different systems, Jeff. yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. You know, let's say we buy... Um uh soybeans, for example. Okay, then soybeans goes higher. We buy more soybeans. The first stop has moved up already. Now we're risking left on the first order. Now instead of risking 20 basis points, we're risking 18 basis points. Uh-huh. By the time we get the third buy signal, maybe the first two signals, instead of risking 40 basis points in total, they're they're down to 30. So now the three combined, maybe we're only risking 50. You know, yeah, we have it, a
0: nice blog post I did once of like that first day, the first week, right? For a trend follower, that's the worst because you you can take the full stop out, and then every day kind of goes somewhat in your even sideways or in your direction. That's going to come in, 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 um, and you're looking better from your from your principal perspective.
1: Exactly. So, in a worst case scenario, we could lose sixty basis points if all three models buy and then reverse immediately. Yeah. But typically, by the time we get the third signal, uh, we're tightening stops already, and and we're not fully exposed. So uh, even if we do double the the uh, risk or the allocation to the market, typically it's not going from sixty to one hundred and twenty. When all is said and done, we're risking no more than one hundred normally. Got it. I love it. Um- now the risk, Lastly, ma- yeah. yeah, the risk management overlay uh, um, has you know helped a lot because it filters out a lot of the uh, um, lower probability trades, and more you know more often than not, it allows us to participate in trending markets, big trends. Uh, uh, we you know we're only taking one third of all the trend following signals so we're going to miss trades as well it's yeah. not unusual for us to miss amongst the move it comes with the territory you know you can't filter out all the bad trades and only take the good trades yeah you know i, I wish we were able to but on occasion you know we'll miss major moves but when all is said and done the 35 percent of the trades we take exhibit a better risk you know reward profile than the 100% of the trades. Um, Now the final piece, the drawdown manager, that's concerned with uh, exits. And that's concerned with managing drawdown. Uh, Typically the systems do very well managing risk. There's the money management stop, there's the trailing stop. Uh, They work 95, 96, 98% of the time except when markets move exponentially. If you buy a market and it just goes straight up, uh, uh, gold was a good example. Gold went straight up last year and peaked in early August, 2020. Uh, there was, you know, gold was going up so sharply, our trailing stop was so far away from the market. Yeah, You know, we said this drawdown is unacceptable. And early on, <clears throat> I said, you know, how do I, you know, oh, what do we, I have to modify the systems? I have to account for this, and then I said, no, 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 uh, keep the systems simple. I mean, I don't. Why modify the systems for something that happens no more than five percent of the time? Mm-hmm. Probably more like two or three percent of the time. Why not just build a separate unit, a, a separate piece of code that could address a situation? So what the drawdown manager does is. It uh, it looks at various metrics, but in its simplest terms, it's basically saying uh, with the market close and today and where's our uh, uh, stop. And if the stops too far away from the market, take defensive action. And which means
0: move the stop up or get out
1: of the position. Either one. Uh, What it first line of defense, uh, it has its own logic to move the stop up. And if we can, you know, we, we, you know, let the drawdown manager determine the new and improved stop, which is closer to the market. And if it meets our stop criteria, if it falls within our risk threshold, fine, we'll take it. If it's still still too far away, if it's still too far away from the market, we will take some money off the table. If, for example, uh, I'm making this up, but if, if, for example, on a position, our risk threshold was 100,000 and the system stop was 280,000 away, uh, then the drawdown manager kicks in. It has to stop 160,000 away, still too far away. What we might have to do then is liquidate, you know, maybe as much as half the position to get it to 80. To hundred thousand of risk,
0: love no.
1: it. Um. And the, you know, I could tell you right off the bat: the drawdown manager hurts us. It doesn't add anything to the bottom line. If all you're concerned about is absolute return, you don't need the drawdown manager. Just let no. the systems run. What the drawdown manager does is, it it um, you know, very often. Prevents big drawdowns, so it uh, you know it dampens drawdowns dramatically. It also hurts on the profit side. Um, you know, I'll make up some numbers. Maybe uh, the pure systems are making twenty percent returns with a twelve percent drawdown. Now, maybe with the drawdown manager, you're only making sixteen percent annualized percent returns. You went from 20 to 16, but you cut drawdowns from 12 to 8. So instead of risk-reward profile of 20 to 12, which is, I don't know, 1.6 to 1, maybe? You went to 2 to 1. Now you're 16 and 8.
0: Right. So it improves the Mar ratio, right? So it improves the...
1: Absolutely. It improves the Mar ratio. And and, and you have to be an old-timer like you (laughs) and I to know, you know... That know managed account report but in
0: theory, that's all anyone should care about, right? I'm like you should it, only care about that ratio.
1: Exactly, and 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 I mean, I've had some people say, "Hey, you know, you're not making as much money as someone else," but yeah. you okay. know, our response is, "But you know, <laughs> preservation of capital. We're not but, giving back money. Or either. Put,
0: invest with less, you know, put less cash up and not notionally trade it, and you'll." you'll make as much as you want with a better risk reward.
1: Exactly, and that's what we target, the best-MAR ratio. We yeah. would much prefer that 16 uh, and eight ratio rather than 20 and 12.
0: Love it. Um, and so lastly, you're so confident in this uh, these Chinese markets, you're putting a bunch of your own money over there to trade those markets, right? Uh,
1: uh, we would like to. And I wanted to all along. Uh, I haven't been able to, but I will with the seven internationalized markets.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. Yeah, yeah yes. you're you're going to personally back your own model to uh, to trade those. Absolutely.
1: Markets. Yeah. No, I've uh, always uh, I've always liked to have skin in the game, and I feel it makes me a better trader.
0: Yeah.
1: I uh, I pay more attention. It, it's like. Um, you know, I, I've read about athletes that, uh, uh, you know, some great athletes that just can't do well in practice, and they do a lot better in the actual game. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, if I have my you own money seen. at stake, it, it, you know, I, I, I feel it takes it to a, a, a higher level for me.
0: Even if you right, you're not only going to uh, eat your own cooking, you're going to eat your own Chinese food cooking.
1: Exactly. <laughs> And I've always loved Chinese food. So yeah,
0: have you learned any uh, Chinese? Learned any Mandarin along the way?
1: uh, Very little. Uh, When I when I did my speaking tour in 1992, I I learned a few words. You know, I mean, you know, basic words. You know, hello, good morning, thank you, but nothing beyond that. I am
0: back up. We might have you might have to get over there a few times, right?
1: Yeah, um, I'm your typical American. Uh, I'm terrible. At languages. I really, I know.
0: it's embarrassing. We have international guys on the pod and they're like, Oh, I speak six languages. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, I- yeah. I love it. Um, well, I hope if we have any listeners still on, we've gone a little long, but this has been all great info. Um, and so we'll put in the show notes, some links to this, uh, these internationalized markets, what we're doing, uh, to get access to those and, um, best of luck to you.
1: Thank you. And thanks a lot, Jeff. Good yeah, and when to
0: you. I'm coming to New York one of these days when things open back up and I want you to take me to that pizza place you took me to one day. You got to remember the name because it was so good.
1: Sure. Uh, I will find it. it, it it's near. It, it's within walking distance of the World Financial Center. So we'll no. go. there.
0: All right. We're going to have a meeting and go get some New York slices. Sounds good uh,
1: to me, my friend.
0: All right, Fred. Great talking
1: to you. Okay, same here. Take care.
0: The Derivative is brought to you by CME Group. CME Group is the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. For more information and educational resources about futures and options, visit cmegroup.com. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at rcmaultz.com. And visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to
1: leave comments. We'd love to hear from you.